people here in Southern California. So, Jeff McCarr. Cool. Well, it is, it is a very exciting time to be here in the Mission Viejo campus, seeing things happen. Like John said, you're going to get a chance to kind of explore the space in a really kind of unique way um, later on today. But very cool to see things happening down here. And speaking of down here, there are four seats right here, folks. Four seats, $100 a piece. Okay. Um, but really good to be back here at Mission Viejo. I, I always like being around here. And like John said, I, came, I just came from Texas where um, I spent... I spent well, first of all, is anybody here from Texas? Okay, everybody that's from Texas usually has that response. This, this guy right here wanted to do a little more of a woo. You could tell he was like, and there's a little bit of a, I'm from Texas. Everybody from Texas thinks you wish you were from Texas if you're not from there. They're so wrong. It is, it is such a nightmare. Um, <laughs> it is really, it's really crazy. It, I think it, the, the coldest it got, we were there at the, during the day. I was there for two weeks, which again, if you're, not from, if you're from Texas, people are like, oh, see, it's great, isn't it? If, you're not, if you've ever visited Texas and you're not from there, two weeks is just, I mean, that's just torture. It's brutal. The coldest it got, I think, was 102. And all you can do there is eat and swim. And you basically can't swim because they, they don't heat their, my, I'm with my in-laws, and they have a pool in their backyard. You can't heat the pool because it's already, it's so hot enough. And it's, it, it's like the jumping into sort of the sort of lukewarm, tepid, it's just gross. You're like, I'm swimming in a pool of sweat. This is really, no matter where I go, I can't avoid this. And anyway, very good to be back here. Good to be with you guys. And I'm excited to sort of put a, a bookend on this series that Mariners has been doing for a while now. This look at the book or this letter of Ephesians um, written by the guy, this guy, the Apostle Paul to these churches in and around the city of Ephesus. And it's been very, very cool. And um, as I teach every Sunday night at the Irvine, uh, Irvine campus in our chapel there to a group of, you know, mainly sort of... Um, a younger audience, um, but a lot, so many people, like it's mostly college-age students, but most, so many people have had so many great things to say about this series, about things they didn't know how God saw them, about how they didn't understand before that they were a masterpiece created in God's image. They didn't understand that they were called a child of God or that they were God's dwelling place, and all these kinds of things have sort of come out in the series, and it's been really, really cool. So very good, to, very excited to be here and be able to sort of put a bookend on that series. Let's pray, and we'll, we'll jump into what God's Word says about it. Jesus, thank you that you meet us here. Thank you that we're in the midst at the Mission Viejo campus of seeing so many really cool things happen with the sort of stage being built, with the room being full, with people having lives changed and stories coming out of this place. And God, we know that everybody has a story coming into these doors. That you have, um, we believe, God, that you have um, brought everybody here on purpose, that there is no accidental visitor here this weekend, that nobody made a wrong turn to the mall and wound up here, that they actually really did, um, you intended them to be here. So Jesus, as we talk and as you talk and as you speak to our hearts, would you challenge us, motivate us? God, would you give us a sense that this is a group of people who are advancing your kingdom in beautiful and unmistakable ways in this world that is so desperate for hope and freedom and peace. So God, would you speak to us in this time? In your name, amen. Well, if you haven't been with us for this series at all, I would recommend that you listen to Mike teach or whoever had been teaching um, in the beginning of this series. Go online download some of the, um, the previous messages to get an understanding of where we are. Because it's really important to understand that for three chapters of this letter that this guy Paul writes, he'd only, he only uses one command, only one imperative the whole time. It's the word remember. Other than that, there's only these identity statements about who people are. And I mentioned some of them already, this sort of dwelling place, children of God, family of God, God's household, God's masterpiece created to do good works. And then in chapter four, it switches. He begins to sort of talk, how do you live out of this identity that you've been already been granted? 
How are we supposed to live as people who are those things? And he says, sort of to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And so this is sort of the, the way we've been talking is about how do we live out of the people that we already are? That God's declared us these things, those who belong to Jesus are already these kinds of people, so how then do we live? If you were here last week, Jeff Preeze did a really good job. I, I heard his message when I was flying back on the plane and um, did a really, really great job talking about sort of this, this thing that Paul switches to in the end of this book. All these wonderful, beautiful statements about unity and family and togetherness. And then in the sort of end of his letter, he says, there's evil out there. You've got to be ready for it. And Jeff did a really great job last week talking about it as we begin to sort of reopen that a little bit and sort of finish it. He said that the battle's already won. This is if you heard Jeff talk about it. The battle's already won. And if you remember, you were here last week. He used a really great example of bears repeating, which was this idea that, and he really does do this. And I, I just, I think this is actually an act of evil that he does this. And he, you know, if you're like... But he actually does, he rec- he's a huge Lakers fan. He'll record Lakers games and watch the fourth quarter and then watch the rest of the game. So he knows, what our, he knows the outcome already. Does anybody else do this? Okay, you guys should be in a support group. That's evil. You know, I'm telling you, that's, that's not how you're supposed to watch sports. And he says, the reason why I do it is I don't want to go to bed all stressed out and all you know, pumped up and all worried about it. I just want to you know, know already what happens. Well, his point was, when we talk about evil... The good team already wins. We know the outcome. The good guys win. We win. People who belong to Jesus. Jesus wins. It's awesome. Yeehaw. Everything's great. But it, also sort of, but it also sort of raises the question, why does Paul talk about it so much then? Why is there such emphasis at the end of this book when he starts talking about evil and how scary it is and how all this, why does he say this? We'll get to that in a second. The other thing Jeff said was this, or maybe, if, maybe just to give it a little context, is that there are kinds of extremes about when we talk about talking about evil. Some of us are looking for spiritual warfare around every single, uh, every single corner. Like, for instance, yesterday, we get back from vacation, and I, I, we're going through the mail, and one, I, there's Amanda goes, hey, is this important? And it says that our, we, for failure to pay, our, our car insurance has been canceled. I was like, that's kind of a big deal. I have to drive. And I'm like 15 minutes from having to leave. And so immediately, I was going to put the 15 minutes or less Geico test to the, I mean, I was going to try and get insurance for our cars in 15 minutes. So... I managed to work out, I, I'm get, but I'm thinking in my head, oh my gosh, I'm going to be late, I'm not, I have to teach, I, I, my wife's got to drive the kids in the van, and we can't have no, tr- i got to figure out what I'm going to do, and you know, I'm, some of you are like, see, right there, spiritual warfare, see what, that, see what happened there, the devil did this thing, or you didn't pay your, insurance. I'm like, no, I didn't pay, that's all that it was, I just didn't pay what I was, I pay my bill on time, so they canceled me, that's all that that is, so some of us are looking for sort of this, you know, pterodactyl shaped dragon, evil creature, making everything happen, like me not paying my bill on time, and that, that's one extreme, sort of this Hollywood version of like practical life as always sort of the spiritual battle. And that's true to an extent. And the others of us would sort of say over on this far end, way over here, we'd say, well, the spiritual battles aren't really spiritual. I mean, it's just sort of people have a way and Paul's talking about in these letters about sort of the way the world is, but it's not really evil. There's no devil. There's no Satan. That's sort of crazy. That's sort of an old wives tale. But I would say to operate somewhere in this middle ground, which is to say there is unmistakably evil in the world. And there is evil behind that evil. There is evil conspiring behind darkness to make darkness occur. The systems and the ways and the powers of this world are not just sort of the only, there is something else there. Because Jesus recognized that, and so does Paul. So to believe the Bible is to believe that there is actually evil out there. There is actually evil stuff happening. 
And Paul paints this picture for a bunch of chapters about how the Christian community, these people who are united under Jesus will live together with this sort of, it almost sounds sort of semi-utopian. There's this forgiveness and reconciliation and peace and love and everyone's called a masterpiece and people are mutually submitting to each other and the husbands are loving. Well, it's just this beautiful picture. And then he slaps people in the face with this reality check. If you were here last week, this is where priest talked about it. It's in um, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. It says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. I'll read that again. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. You can tell this is sort of the concluding sort of statements about his letter to this church. In verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, to recap a lot of stuff, but to be able to say there is, in a sense, there are two kingdoms in which we get to participate in. One is the kingdom initiated, sort of inaugurated by Jesus. It's God's kingdom made manifest in the earth. It's a kingdom um, sort of exemplified or sort of um, lived out in forgiveness and love and reconciliation and peace and bringing people who were once far from God to a relationship with him through Jesus. And there's, that's one kingdom. And the other kingdom is this kingdom that belongs to Satan, this evil kingdom in which selfishness and bitterness and greed, anything that would sort of oppose all those other things sort of flourishes. And those are the two kingdoms that we're up against. And Jesus is saying, and Paul is saying, if you're part of God's people, then you're part of this kingdom that's working for these kinds of things that are good. And the, this other kingdom will do everything it can to resist the full power of this God's kingdom on the earth. Now, throughout all of this letter and through all of Paul's letters, he says over and over again about Jesus' authority. There is no other authority. Other, Jesus is over everything. There is nothing to be afraid of. We know we win the battle. We have more power than we know what to do with. It's amazing. We have all of the sort of everything is lined up. It's going to be great. And yet he says, put on the full armor of God. Now, here's just something to kind of consider. Now, if you are, if you fall slightly or really very much so in the sort of, the sort of world in which I live, um, good or bad, I live in this sort of nerdy universe. But if you read the books, not just saw the movies, but if you read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and some of you will not, and I'll just, I'll just secretly acknowledge our brotherhood right now. Um, but if you read them, the last book has a scene they didn't include in the movie. And there's, there's two ousted evil powers. There's, this, there's Saruman and this other evil wizard that you don't really ever see. His name's Sauron. And Saruman's been ousted. He's got no power. Good wins. Everybody's happy. Yeehaw. The sort of the people who live in this place called the Shire, the hobbits, who are the unlikely small people who defeat evil, big evil. Through that land comes walking this ousted wizard, this bad guy named Saruman. And he starts saying these things to these little fearful creatures, these people. He starts saying to them, I'll destroy you. If you don't turn to, turn to me, if you don't follow me, I'll tear, I'll tear you apart. I'll destroy your town. And all these people begin to act afraid. They've already seen the battle won. Everything's already And they start acting afraid. And the voice of reason in the story has to say, don't listen to his words. Do not give any power to his words. He has already been declared powerless. He has nothing he, has nothing he can do except that which we give to him. The same thing is true here. For the believer, the ones who belong to Jesus, there is no power that can be taken in your life except that which is given to the one who is already defeated. Understand? Same thing going on here. Now, to make this even a little bit more clear, 
The way evil flourishes in our lives is when we give it permission to be there. Here's what I mean. I, um, for a long time, I, shared, I was right next door to a guy at the Irvine campus in our, in our offices. And his office, he was kind of borrowing the space for a while, and it was kind of, his office became the place where everybody put the stuff that they didn't need. So, and we kind of became the joke, because he wasn't always there. So he'd go away on trips, and then we would just pile useless things into his office that were just borderline, like, we, it's too valuable to throw away, but it has no real value anywhere else. You know, it was like a really beautiful painting that was sort of, nobody really wanted, you know, and it was kind of ugly, so we put it in LV's office. That's just kind of how, what we did. Now, he has since, he got hired on our staff full-time, he's the care and recovery pastor, at the, you know, and so for All Mariners Church, he's this really this great guy. But one of the things that got left was this sort of, um, this, the, I'll show it to you, this creepy cherub <laughs> right here. It's kind of giving you the, hey, what's up? I always think he expresses, hey. Okay, so there's this sort of oddly sized decoration, which someone, I think very funny, you guys can maybe see it. Someone actually took red marker and colored in the eyes to add a little layer of creepiness. Um, But what LV and I started to do is sort of trade off this, we sort of would trade back and forth this holy object. And so I would place it in his office somewhere that would kind of, it would either either be so subtle that you couldn't see it, which you're like, how is that subtle? You just, you wouldn't believe it. Put it behind the door so he doesn't see it until he leaves or whatever. But it would end up underneath my desk at times. And so you walk in and there it is, sure enough, underneath your desk is, ha, you know, as you're putting your chair under. So he moves offices and we start, the scale of like how we're beginning to sort of send this thing back and forth is now beginning to increase a little bit. So I, um, I take her, it, him, whatever. I take this, this little statue. I look out at the, this guy LV's office who's now across the way from me and I see that he's not there. So I go into his office, find his keys and I run down to his car. And so <laughs> I, have to, I have to carry this down the stairs though. As I'm walking down the stairs, hey everybody, how's it going? High five, you know, whatever. So I'm, I'm walking down the stairs and everybody looks at me like, really, you're carrying that thing? You know, which by the way, walking here last night, people carrying this thing, people are like, nice angel. Um, so I walk down the stairs, I unlock his car and put it so that as he opens the door, that's what he sees, just right there. Like, so it's kind of like feet first under the steering wheel. So when he opens the door, that's what he sees. I lock his car, run his keys back up to his office and I have to wait a second because he's got like a meeting going on. So I'm kind of half working really. I mean, I was, you know, kind of like trying to see when he's the exact moment when I could run in there and place the keys back exactly where I took them. So, I mean, it was all, this is like, I spent probably way too much time in that day trying to figure out how to do this. I get the keys back in his office and I, the rest of the day, I'm just waiting to see when does he leave so I can follow him out to his car because this is just going to be the greatest thing in the world. So he leaves I'm like, you know, 100 yards behind him, and I send him a text message like five seconds before he hits his car. And this is what I send him. One day you'll ask yourself, how did he do it? That's all that I send him. So he gets closer to his car, and I can see him approaching the car, and he just, he kind of stops like, not sure. He gets the text message, how did he do it, right? And he gets his car, unlocked, boop, boop, opens it, and there's the angel, you know, whatever, like this. <laughs> I'm like, have a great weekend, LV, <laughs> whatever, I kind of make fun of him. So... I'm driving home. I'm like so excited. I'm, I'm telling Amanda, my wife, how, how this all went. I, so there's this angel. She can't understand. There's this angel. And then I did this thing and whatever. And so I'm like, it's the greatest thing ever. So that night, I'm putting my youngest bed, who's, you know, two, two and a half. He's almost three years old. I'm putting him to bed and we're kind of in his room and I'm rocking him and kind of, you know, whatever, sitting there with him and um, rubbing his back. And I get a text from LV and it says, one day you'll ask yourself, how did he do it? And I'm like, <laughs> LV, are you in here? Are you here? So 
I put, I'm like, I got this grin on my face, like, oh, oh man, what did he do? So I put my son down, he's asleep, and I walk, I'm, I'm walking, looking at my phone. I'm in much the same pose as I saw my friend LV only hours earlier doing this. And he, I'm looking down at my phone, and I walk in the room, and sure enough, straight out of like a, a God, the Godfather, there's the angel underneath my covers in my bed. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh. And of course, I was so, I, I was more incensed that he got, he got the better of me, but I was like, oh, that's totally inappropriate. I have little kids. And you walk into my house and you do this. This is just, I don't know what, this is crazy. I'm, I, you know, so I'm all, I'm all furious about it, but I try to act cool about it. And I go, I go to my wife, I go, um, oh, so I take, the, I, I take the angel out. I mean, what do you do with this thing? So I, and I have to get LV back at some point, which he does, he's out of town. So <laughs> anyway, I, I put the angel in my closet and just try to you know, get out of the way and stuff. Also, because I don't want my kids to wreck it. I still want to be able to torture LV with it. So I put it in the closet and I, I go, Amanda, you know, I just want to let you know, this is a little crazy. I mean, it kind of got out of hand, but. LV actually came into our house and put that in our bed. And she goes, oh, I know, I let him in. <laughs> you let him in? She's like, oh, yeah, I let him. He asked me if I, he'd come over and do that. I thought that was really funny. So I'm like, oh, yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> now check this out. Days later, my wife's doing stuff in, the, in our bedroom, trying to get stuff ready, and she opens the closet, and sure enough, hi, right there is the angel right at her. And she, she screams and she, she says some words in a string that, you know, you, you don't want your children to hear, words that are not permitted in our house. Our neighbors might question, you know, isn't that the pastor's house? And doesn't he, you know, so this is with a stream of words come out like that. And I, and I just have a little bit of joy. <laughs> I just, I'm like, <laughs> you let him in. That's your fault. I'm so sorry that happened to you, but <laughs> you know, that's what I say. Now, she didn't appreciate that very much. Um, but how did, he, how did she get so scared? Well, really, she's the one who let him into the house. The only way that the sort of evil that we're talking about here has power is when we give it power, we allow it to take up residence and to be there in our lives. So the question again is, why does Paul then say, if that's all that it is, why does he say, then put on the full armor of God so you'll be able to stand? Why does he say that? Because maybe there's something else to this that we haven't yet considered. Check out what it says in Ephesians, Ephesians 6, verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground after you've done everything to stand. I would say this. You can make a whole message out of the word stand. I think it's used four times in about three verses in this passage. I'll read it again. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Now, if you grew up in the church or you have some experience with the church, you've heard this passage before. This is where Paul gives a list about the armor of God. And it's a famous passage and it's, you know, there's volumes and volumes, thousands of pages are written on each of the implements that are mentioned here. And we don't have time to cover each one in detail, but I will tell you this, I want to reframe it slightly than probably you've heard it before if you grew up in the church. First thing you got to know is this, Paul is in prison when he's writing this letter. More than likely, he's actually chained to a Roman soldier. Not just chained to the ground or chained to a place. He's chained to a Roman soldier. He's actually looking at a guy who embodies Roman soldiering, okay? Now, he does leave some things out. There are things in the Roman sort of arsenal, the way that people would be armed with things that they would wear. He leaves some things out. The point isn't to give a complete list of Roman sort of military implements. The point is to say this. You, people who belong to Jesus, have everything you need. 
You have everything you need. Secondly, it's to say that those things that are given to you are from God. They are not the result, as so many people in this time and in this world would have understood, they are not the result of magical incantations or amulets or special scrolls. These are things given to you by the authority of Jesus so that you could do battle. Okay? But here's the armor. Verse 14. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always, always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Okay, like I said, I'm not going to be able to cover everything here. You could do weeks and weeks on this, just this passage. But here's a couple things to think about. First, three items mentioned here are only worn during battle. They're never worn, they're not just worn like all the time as part of the sort of Roman, you know, uniform. So these three things are this, the helmet, the breastplate, and the shield. So when a Roman soldier has to like go to the store or whatever he has to do, he doesn't put on the helmet, he doesn't put on the breastplate, he doesn't carry a shield. You just go. So these are all things that are intended to illustrate that these people are in battle. They're equipped and ready for fighting. Let me show you a picture. This is a really intimidating Roman soldier. There he is. Just to give you a sense of what you're looking at. We can leave that up for a second. The shield mentioned here is a shield that's four feet tall. You can see it in this picture here. Shield's a wooden shield, and then it's covered in leather. And often what would happen before the Romans would go to battle, they would dip the shield in water so that the leather would soak. And the idea was that when the enemies would fire upon them with, with arrows that were lit on fire, that they would be able to extinguish the arrows by the shield. So that's why it says in verse uh, 15, 16, you take up the shield which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now some would say, some scholars say this is a direct reference to the Roman sort of god of sexuality and sexual desire, Cupid, because he shot flaming arrows. He looked a lot like this evil creature. But... Um, but that's, not, that's kind of debated, although, sure, why not? That could be true. Paul mentions the helmet. He says, put on the helmet of salvation. Now, this is, if you're, for the Jewish audience who had heard this before, they could have made and maybe likely made an understanding of there's someone else in the Bible who wears a helmet of salvation. God does. If you're very fast at flipping in your Bible to Isaiah, you can do this, Isaiah 59. Otherwise, just keep it in Ephesians. I'll put it on the screen because I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time there. But listen to what it says in Isaiah 59. Verse 15, the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene, so his arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. Listen to this. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. And according to what they have done, so he will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. God wears the helmet of salvation. God is not the recipient of salvation. He is the dispenser of salvation. I want you to just, we're beginning to get a little hint of what I'm going to get at here, which is this, with this helmet sort of piece. The people who follow and who belong to Jesus are the recipients of salvation, God's rescue for their lives from one kingdom to this other kingdom, God's kingdom in the present and in the future. But they are also a part of the dispensing. They play some kind of role in the rescuing of the rest of the world too. We'll come back to that in a second. Then you have this sword mentioned. The sword, the Latin word for this sword is the gladius. You might recognize a swordsman as a 
Gladiator. Yeah, exactly. So this is a short sword. It's not a long sword. It's not the Braveheart sword where he just you know, keeps drawing it out, you know, this giant sword. It's just a short sword, which means it's only utilized in close combat. People didn't throw the Gladius at other people. They didn't, they, and they couldn't use it for a long time. They had to be up close with, against someone else to use it. It could be only utilized in close combat. Now, that small sort of sword, this sword of the, the spirit, which is the word of God, is held in the belt of truth. You can do all kinds of stuff thinking about that if you want. Now, I want to show you a picture of how the Roman fighting sort of force would look. This is how historians think it might look right here. Okay, now look at this. Just I'll keep that up there for a little bit. Now, this is an improvised sort of um, version, improved version of what the Greeks did. This is sort of what's called the phalanx. And the whole notion of this success, of this fighting force, hinged on its ability to fight together. In other words, everybody had to say, we're all doing our job here together. My shield protects the guy in front of me, and it protects me. I have to do, the, I, my shield protects the guy to my side, and to the, both sides of me, and it protects me. If anybody decides... At one point, they're just going to go off and be on their own. They'll die. And the whole group suffers. Now, this is a group that does not sort of... Um, this is the, way, the way Paul's describing here, he's not describing a centurion, a commander of lots of people. He's describing a warrior. He's describing this one person who carries a shield. In other words, I want you to imagine for a moment like the second or third guy in that row, that you're that guy. You're holding the shield above your head, and the only thing you get to look at is the back of another guy's head. That means that the course that's laid out for you is the one that's determined by someone else, a commander outside of these sort of shields, telling you where to go, and you simply knowing that the only way you're going to succeed is if everybody sticks together, if even against your better interests, against your best judgment, you simply stick together and follow where you're supposed to go. Everybody under the shield canopy walks together. You don't get to determine where you go. You simply are responsible for making sure that everybody in that group does their own job. Shield over my head, shield over your head. Close together. What often we see in the Bible is when people begin to start having major failures. The story throughout the Bible is when people begin to imagine that they don't need to listen to the commander who is outside that sort of group. And they don't, they, they are so okay on their own. They're well equipped to be able to do whatever it is they need to do on their own. This starts in the very beginning of history. The very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. This is what's known as the fall. Adam and Eve are walking around. They're being tempted by this serpent to say, eat from this tree and you'll be able to become something. Become what you always hoped you would be. Genesis 3 verse 4 and 5 says this. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The temptation here, the tempter, the way that this sort of enticement goes is that you want to do this because you want to be able to operate on your own. You should be able to, you have enough power on your own. You're ready to go. You don't need God. You should be able to be like God and determine those things for yourself. See where this is going a little bit? Can you put the picture back up of that group? So here's the fighting unit again. Now, notice a couple things. All of these people are standing up. If you've heard this before, you probably have understood that at some level, if you've heard this passage before, 
if you're like me, the way I always understood this was, the, over there, there's an armory. Go over there and get your armor, and then God be with you in your fight against evil. And the way I always understood it was sort of like, well, resist it, which meant sort of just stand my ground or dig a hole and have my shield and hope nothing attacks me. But if Paul's really kind of hinting at this kind of a person, the way that the Romans were so successful in battle was that they fought like this. And they were, in this picture, with this shield and with the things he's described, these elements that are intended for battle, this is the way they would make forward progress on an enemy. Is it possible that what Paul's describing here is kind of, at least some way, or maybe almost exclusively, an offensive sort of mindset for his people? That not only would we resist evil, staying sort of still, but we would actually begin to move forward against it. So there's this group fitted together. Obedient, submissive to the leader, saving each other's lives by walking it the way that they would. And they're not simply waiting to be attacked. They're actually moving forward in sort of a deliberate fashion. Now, let me jump out of that for a moment. Some of you in this room, you've been coming to this great sort of community of people. You've been a part of what's happening at Mariner's Mission Viejo. You've enjoyed perhaps Mike's teaching. You've enjoyed being a part of this sort of gathering on Sunday mornings or Saturday night, whenever you come, and you've sort of begun to sort of see what's happening here. And you're wondering to yourself, is this all that there is? Is this teaching? Is this just, do I like this? Is it? But you're wondering, how do I actually begin to survive the real sort of battles in my life? And the only way that these guys die is if one of them breaks off on their own. The way people die in battles when they're on, you can be wounded and be in a group, but you can't be wounded and be alone. Folks, let me just give you, you heard John already say this once. If you want to be able to sort of gather up like this, the best way to do that is through Rooted. I mean, I'm, I'm going to pitch this to our people on Sunday nights as well. Because there is something about being connected with people where you say, I'm wounded, but I don't want to be alone. I have things in my life that have to be dealt with that there is evil in my life that needs to be advanced against and will you help me do it? I just don't want to be alone. That's a picture of what Rooted looks like. Not merely waiting for evil to come but actually moving against sort of the forces and powers of evil in this world. If you, maybe you're beginning to get a picture of what I'm talking about. Paul is talking about more than just sort of simply waiting for an attack. And the reason why I think that is because of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16. If you have your Bible and can flip to that, please do. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus and his disciples are walking to Jerusalem. And his disciples at this point, most scholars agree now that the disciples, the oldest one would have been Peter, probably no more than 25 years old or so. And most of the rest of the disciples, probably in the sophomore and high school age group. They're young. And he's walking these, his disciples to Jerusalem. And he has to stop in this place called Caesarea Philippi. And we'll talk about it there. So here we are, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now Caesarea Philippi, let me just give you a little quick sense background here. It, it used to go by another name. A former name for this city was the, was the name Paneas. P-A-N-I-A-S. This is a place where people worshiped a god, Pan. Pan's sort of this wild God, like so many gods seem to be having something to do with fertility, but this is where people would get together and they would worship Pan. It was crazy. And what they would do is, um, Pan's represented by a goat, and I'm going to speak a little bit in code, just because there's some uh, people in the audience, but these are, people would worship God the way people worshiped fertility so often in the ancient world. You might imagine what that might look like. They didn't water the ground. <laughs> hey, look, it's fertility. No, that's not a party, okay? It's everything you could imagine in the most crazy way 
animals, people, everybody, it's all this enacting of fertility acts. You guys with me understanding? Just give me the knowing. I know what you're talking about. Okay, that's what's happening here. Now, this is where people are going. Now, imagine, Jesus, if, you're, if a youth pastor from any place in any church anywhere said, I'm taking, my, I'm taking a bunch of sophomores over to this place. <laughs> that's how a youth pastor gets fired. I want to do a little Bible lesson over at this brothel in Vegas. That'd be really cool. Okay. I mean, you know, like, that's crazy. That's what's happening here, okay? At this place um, in, in Peneus, in Caesarea Philippi, there is something called the Rock of the Gods. In this cliff, there are all these shrines built to these different gods, Pan being sort of foremost among them. But there's all these shrines built to these gods there. And at the base of the cliff, there's an opening and a water that flows down into this opening. And the people refer to that opening as the gates of Hades, the gates of hell. That, that's the actual entrance to the underworld right there. One of the entrances to the underworld. So this is where people worshipped Pan and all these other gods at this rock. And right there is the gates, this cave entrance into the underworld of Hades. All right, now, verse, where are we? Verse 14. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, there's all kinds of debate about what's Jesus talking about here. If you grew up in the church, you know that the name Peter means rock, rocky. There's, there's Peter being called rock. And Jesus says about the rock, this is where some people, some Christian traditions have sort of this understanding. This is where G- Peter is given this sort of leadership of the whole church. Maybe. Some say that he's talking to all the disciples. He's, he ad- addresses Peter, and then he calls the disciples, you are the rock on which I'll build this church. Others say he's talking about himself. I mean, maybe, if, again, if you grew up in the church, you, you've heard the song, you know, on Christ the solid rock I stand. This sort of, Jesus identifies himself with the rock. But maybe there's something else going on here. You know, throughout all the Bible, there is this flair for the dramatic and the ironic that God seems to sort of enjoy. That things that are powerless would overcome the powerful, things that are seemingly unwise overpowering the wise. And what what I think might actually be going on here, if you look at it closely, is this. Jesus is very aware where he is. He's at the rock of the gods. Is it possible that what Jesus is saying to his disciples is that the forces of evil gathered there, this wild sort of ecstatic, you know, sort of partying that went on that people thought they were having the life they'd always want. Is it possible that he's saying at that place, at this rock, he's saying, upon this rock, in the furthest, most outreach, outpost of evil, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not be able to overcome it. In the Greek, it reads a little bit more like, the gates will not be able to prevail against it. Maybe what he's talking about is a forward-moving kind of people who are not simply waiting for evil to attack them, but are in the midst of, the, of some of the darkest places in the world and saying, this is where good starts. This is where good gets to win. This is where God's kingdom gets to have power over evil. Jesus describes the gates of Hades, the gates of hell. Gates are defensive. Gates are put up in fear. Gates keep people out. No one hands a soldier a piece of offense and says, go to battle. When you want to equip soldiers for battle, you equip them the way Paul describes them. 
I mean, if Jesus or Paul wanted us merely to sort of adopt a defensive posture, he would have probably recommended a gate or a fence for us. Instead, we've been given armor. And Jesus says, maybe the way the church ought to operate is to be in the forwardmost place where nobody really wants to be, where good can win over evil. Folks, as we talk about this church, would you consider maybe that this is an outpost in the darkest places for which you would be sent out to do good, to enact God's kingdom in the world, to bring about the way of living that Paul has described, the way that Jesus has described, that we live in a place, as Paul says, that is controlled by the powers and principalities of this world that's not flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual forces of evil. And maybe we're right in the midst of it, and this place gets to be an outpost from which people who are well-armed get to go together to deal with things that are not acceptable in this world. Now for us, when we talk about battling evil, some of us have in our head this sort of picture of like witchcraft or again, like sort of swooping in pterodactyl-shaped demons that attack people and stuff like that. And in my ministry, in my life of being a pastor, I've encountered that kind of crazy, scary demon stuff probably twice. I mean, and it's, for, it's definitely for real. It's, it was like, oh my gosh. And, and to be honest, I'm not sure had I not experienced that, I would have even believed that, honestly. But for the most part, when we're talking about evil, it takes a much more mundane shape. It take a much, takes a much more simple kind of way of operating in our lives. And I would say for us, perhaps one of the things that we ought to be start, start considering in our lives is how do we identify that which is evil? Because if we're waiting for the scary demon, more than likely, it's not going to come in that form to us. It's going to come a lot differently than that. I would say is this. My own nature and my own life is to run in fear and to hide. I don't like conflict. I don't, I'd, I'd rather be everybody's friend. I'd rather have you not like me and be mean to me than, you know, me try to work it out, honestly. When this, when I read this, I actually get a little bit nervous. I get a little bit scared. And what I want to have you begin to understand is that there is, there's some real stuff happening here. And then maybe we ought to take that seriously. Here's a couple ways just to think about it. And then we'll, we'll kind of move into sort of our response. It's very easy for us to see things that are uncomfortable, that are unjust, and to simply look away from them. We live in a world, we live in a very suburban world in which we can simply say, we can turn the channel, we can turn our eyes, we can sort of avoid those things. We can look at poverty and injustice from a very far distance and we can say, well, that's, you know, that's over there and thank God I don't live there. I'm not part of that scenario. I know that's what I do. And maybe that's not part of sort of this kingdom that God is describing, that Paul is describing, that God wants us to be a part of. Maybe for some of us, it's in, if you're like me at all, there's the secret sort of life in which we hear the whispers of evil that say to us, it doesn't really matter if you do this or you think these things or you go down this road in your mind about that person or you enjoy something that you see, perhaps, that's not really appropriate. Maybe it's outright evil. It doesn't really matter because no one will know about it. All of a sudden, the power of evil has been resurrected in my own life because I'm allowing it to be there. Folks, I want us to imagine that when we talk about this life together, it's a life together. It is not just merely us being armed to go out there by ourselves. It is us together in this group saying, we will not tolerate evil in all of its forms, subtle, mundane, or otherwise. 
And it's a group that says, we are not going to fight evil with the weapons of evil, of intimidation and fear. We're going to fight evil with the weapons that God has given us of faith and hope and peace and reconciliation and salvation. Why don't you do this? In a moment, you're going to sort of make a sort of very literal stand in this place about this being an outpost in which the people united here say, we don't, we're not simply here to sort of retreat from the world. We're actually here to change it, to make it a different place. We say at Mariners that we're ordinary people transformed by God, in love, in love with Jesus, transformed by God to transform the world. This is what we're about. This is what Paul's talking about to his people. It's what we do at Mariners Church. Would you do this for me? Just stand up. And in an act of sort of, we don't have shields here, why don't you hold hands with the person next to you? Across the aisles, do it. Everybody hold hands. Try to, try to let the band come down, I guess, too. They're going to need to get through here. But hold hands. And what I want you to do is close your eyes. In your life, and with this group, as you hold hands, how will you commit to working against evil in this world, in all of its forms, subtle and mundane, the whispers, the power given, just you and Jesus right now holding hands with someone else. What does it look like for you in your own life to stand together with people and say, I need to hear from them the truth to separate that out from the lies. And they need to hear from me the truth about God's kingdom and goodness and to declare the lies untrue. Where in your life have you given permission for things like anger and bitterness and lust and rage and, and jealousy and gossip and slander to sort of flourish? Where do you need to say right now as you hold hands and as you speak to God in the quietness of your own heart that evil no longer has power? Jesus, would you hear our words? Would you understand, God, would you help us to understand as we hold hands in this room that this is an outpost and this is a group gathered together saying as long as we stand together, as long as we wear the armor that you give to us, we cannot be defeated. So Jesus, as we sing these songs and as we respond to you in a very cool and unique way, Jesus, would you hear our prayer of solidarity, of power, and I desire, God, to follow and pursue you wherever you might lead us. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so here's how we want to respond. Um, you can just stay standing for just one moment. Here's how we want to respond this morning. Uh, we do want to make a stand as a community. And uh, we realize that um, there, are way, there are battles that are being waged and warred um, in this very room.